Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. So this is the 30th episode of season four, big three zero. It's pretty crazy um, and also exciting. Uh, but before we go into our guest, I have a pretty cool announcement. If you follow me on Instagram, it's at rich underscore tu. You've been seeing me tease about a Nike project. Uh, it's with Nike and their cultivator program, which uses a group of sneaker and fashion and music people for sneaker drops in specific areas. And I had the pleasure of being part of this drop. And it's a great group of creators. Um, and the model I get to work on is the Air Max 270 React. And if you're wondering, Rich, why the hell do I care about this? Uh, the reason it matters is because this model was actually inspired by this podcast, First Gen Burden, and also all the amazing guests and uh, really uh, my connection back to uh, my homeland in the Philippines and and I called the shoe the first gen. So if you're a sneakerhead, I think you're gonna like it. Um, I'm really proud of it. I think it's a beautiful sneaker. And also for the 270 React, it's got that big fat 270 bubble on the back end, which personally I love right now. I think it's a great aesthetic. And the colors came out so good. The whole thing is really full circle for me because when I started this podcast, about three years ago, a little over three years ago now, um, I was working at Nike in Portland, Oregon. So it's really amazing to be a part of this whole experience, especially right now at this point in my life. So the link is live. Watch out. There's a ton of underscores in it, but I will put the link in the episode summary. And that's cultivator.co backslash NYC underscore rich underscore TU. Cultivator spelled funky. So it's C-L-T-V-T-R dot co backslash nyc underscore rich underscore tu and that links right to nike.com so it's a pretty cool thing and hope you check it out i'll put that in the summary for the episode and speaking of sneakerheads today we talked to Kervin brisseau we recorded this at listening party in canal street market um, so shout out to those guys. Kervin is an artist designer, also a design director at Vault 49, which is a really great creative agency. We talked to him about being a first generation son of Haitian immigrants. And this was such a fun conversation. Uh, we talk about conservative parents, pop culture. There's a lot of pop culture. And we talk about how we got into his current role as design director at Vault 49. And also how he got to be the artist for Adobe's Illustrator program uh, very recently. So when you open up the program, that's his art that you see for the latest edition, and that's pretty dope. And we talk a lot about sneakers. Uh, we talk about StockX and also what Virgil are doing for the culture. It's really interesting. Um, it's a long conversation, but it's really enjoyable. So here's our convo with Kervin Brousseau. Yeah, because I see a lot of people like, you watch like Power 105 and... <laughs> Yeah. Like they 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 talk right up on that. Yo, like they're they making are, out with the mic. They are on the shit because then you can always turn it down, but it's hard to turn some shit up. Yeah, this is true. You know, because then like all the all the extra auditory noise as you turn it down, that extra shit goes way down too. So you, then, okay. yeah, all that. Jeez, stuff. you can even hear my teeth smacking this joint. This is yeah, crazy. Yeah, you can. Yeah, like when you wow. see Charlemagne on this shit, he's like he's like way up on it. <laughs> <laughs> you should get my brother on here. He's his voice would do really well. Oh, really? Yeah, he's trying to get into voice acting right now. Actually. Is he really? Yeah, yeah, he's been doing the the which call it the NYU uh like uh, graduation ceremony. Like he's the the voiceover for that. Like he'll announce the names and he'll oh 
That's so live do, shit's tough. Yeah, yeah. Out in, um, I think they do it in Yankee Stadium every year. Wow. You got to pronounce things well. Mm-hmm. You have to enunciate. Yeah. I did a, a hosting situation for the TDC a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And then just just the names within the long form copy, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like all the all these different international names. I was yeah. so stressed out. Yeah. No, he's, he's really, really good at it. And, um, the thing that I, I kind of give people some context, he kind of sounds like the Allstate guy. That's literally his voice. Like, it's not even, it's like, it's not even a lie. Like, it, it sounds like an exaggeration. It's not. If, if you brought oh, the him dude from here, 24, that's the Allstate yeah, guy. Is that, is that, yeah, is that the same yeah. dude? Yeah. Yeah. And also from Major League. Remember, I don't know that one. Remember know. Major League, the baseball movie with Charlie Sheen? Oh yeah, and like those classic. Is it was it late eighties or early nineties? Uh, late eighties. Yeah, yeah. Corbin Burson was in it as okay. well. I'm trying to remember that character's name. It was um yeah, but he was the one who who could hit homers like a like a motherfucker, mm-hmm. but then he couldn't hit like a specific pitch. He couldn't hit like a curveball, and then he would just flip out every single time. And that was his one. It was that member's one weakness <laughs> that he had to overcome in oh, that man. sports comedy. Oh man, yeah. I, I haven't watched a lot of like sports comedies. Like, is that like even still a thing anymore? I feel like that's like a fad that died out in the early two thousands. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what was the last great sports comedy that you remember? Mm. Was it Waterboy? It might be Waterboy. It might have been Waterboy. Well, in terms of uh, sports comedy shows, uh, Eastbound and Down. That's probably oh, like yeah. a lineage of those older comedies about that's that true. down and out. Um, kind of like probably toxic male character yeah, that yeah. has to reinvent himself, but then that character just never fucking learned anything. Oh my god! My roommate back in like grad school was obsessed with that show. Oh He's really? It is oh, funny. That was his thing. Yeah. Um, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think. There are no sports comedies now. They're all gone. Yeah, they're all gone. It's like a. It's, an, it's they're all inspirational sports now. Yeah, a lot of that. For yeah, sure. a lot of um, uh, the Invincibles, the Mark Wahlberg Invincibles, or the. Yeah. Uh, Coach Carter type movies. Yeah. 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 People are into that shit now. Like, they are. People need to feel good about themselves. You notice that there's like a lot of trend. I think a lot of it is driven by social media too. Like trying to be inspirational and like trying too hard. You think, I wonder if Hollywood is kind of taking a note from that. And like there's things happen in cycles, obviously, but yeah, you wonder if like there, there's like someone listening in right on that side and then just trying to like market it or trying to monetize it somehow. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that outrageous comedy mindset has there was the idea like you would go to the theater and you would mm. see something kind of naughty mm. or see something kind of um illicit that you couldn't experience on tv mm-hmm. so you could only see it there mm-hmm. and then now it's the the opposite idea of like tv so ratchet that you have to you kind of be inspired by oh my god do you watch that show euphoria oh no oh, I, I do want to see it i do love zendaya god. though it is um, like it crosses so many lines, but it's all for good reason. Really? Yeah. And, and it's a bunch of kids just like growing up like through an authentic experience, right? I kind of, if I could give any like sort of pop culture references for it, it's like a, a marriage of the like that classic movie Kids, right? Yep, of course. With- um, Damn, movie is classic. Is, isn't it? And it's kind of like, um, and the, then there's like these this sort of like multi-story elements to it. Like you're following all these different characters. Right. Um, almost in the same vein as like The Wire or um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, what's another great reference for that? I can't think of it off the top of my head right now, but it's just really well written and yeah. not every character kind of interacts yes. with each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
um, I guess kind of like a Game of Thrones too for a more modern reference in sure. terms of like having those multi-linear stories. But man, it's really good, man. Damn, see, you're like the third person to tell me this week to jump on it. I should jump should, on it. You should. The if you get past the first episode, you'll then you you'll be you'll be fine. Like I'll the first episode hooked. really like pushes it just to like it, it's good because it tests like your expectations. It's almost like that first episode of Black Mirror where it's like. Like if you can handle the dude messing with the pig, yeah. then, <laughs> spoiler alert, then you, then like, you know what? Then you can endure the rest of it. Cause yeah. that's like the worst of it. As far as I'm concerned, that first episode of Black Mirror is by yeah, far exactly. the worst. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the most yeah. heinous. It's the most heinous, but the one with probably the strongest message, I think of all the episodes that I've seen. Right. That's true. Because I mean, yeah. the cell phone did it at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's like, like if people were actually paying attention to what was happening around them, they would have noticed. Again, spoiler alert. Hopefully, people yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. But um, like they would have noticed that the girl was was free. Like she was already, like she was safe the whole time. She was out in the street, but everyone was in the damn bar watching this dude. Yeah, getting it on with this pig, and it's like, wow. Do you think that the the mechanism of Black Mirror, like we're just so like smart to it now that no, like the current season mm-hmm. or the most recent season, mm. like it's just less impactful by virtue that we know what black mirror is like can they really yeah. like how do they escalate because i guess when they did um oh what, what was the the choose your own adventure movie see it was so recent i can't oh, even bandersnatch remember. yeah when they did bandersnatch like yeah. oh, i was like oh shit mm-hmm. black mirror is doing like something totally different but mm-hmm. then you can't do that every single time it's like no, that's so hard and the, and the success rate for those types of experimental things vary, man. It's it's very hard to to calculate how well that's gonna do. Yeah, things that's like true. Bandersnatch, things like like because Bandersnatch, in all honesty, wasn't even the first to do it. It um, wasn't. Yeah, there was but they this, did it well. They did I it very say. well. I think they did it well. It, it was kind of like talking to a bunch of my colleagues. A lot of it was like hit or miss for them, but for me, I, I enjoyed it. I played through it multiple times, and I yeah. liked it every single time. Right. Um, Mosaic was, I think, the very first of its kind to do it. It was like that HBO show where it, it starred, what was the name? What's the name of that actress? I can't remember. Uh, oh man, it's going to kill me. You ever see the movie Sphere? Yes. Um, who was the blonde in that? Sharon Stone? Yes. It starts yeah. Sharon Stone. And there's two ways to view it. You can watch it linearly. I think. That was a deep cut, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very deep cut. Because I can't remember the more popular one that she was in. When she crosses her legs, it just completely... Basic instinct. Yes, basic instinct. That's it. <laughs> Boom. So I, I used you. to be obsessed with Sharon Stone when I was a kid. Oh, and was. I read Sphere. Mm-hmm. And I used to be obsessed with the book, too, because I used to read Michael Crichton books, like, mm-hmm. religiously, mm-hmm. when I was, like, in seventh grade. And oh, then man. and then I was like, oh, because it was apparently, I guess, really easy to read when you're, like... Yeah. A, preteen right yeah and then uh and then i kind of read other shit but right sphere specifically was so like the visuals of the book were in my head about the way that those characters turned and about the way that sharon stone character shifted her like visual perception and her like uh, and she made herself appear to other people yeah yeah. based on the influences in the book dude i that movie was like Probably my favorite movie for quite some time. Was it really? In terms of science fiction, it was between that and then when I discovered The Fifth Element, I was oh like, Oh yeah, my God. That's my new favorite sci-fi. Yo, movie. that movie has aged so well, but who knew? Nobody. Who knew? It, didn't, it wasn't even received well when it came out. It theaters, wasn't, yeah. You know what I mean? But then it, Luke Besson can't make anything good now. <laughs> no, he cannot. I saw his latest one. Such a coin- that movie was a coincidence. It was, yeah. And you know what? When you look at... When you look at the fifth element, it is super campy and the the writing is not that great. No. But what's there's like two key things that I take from it that people really gravitate towards. 
Number one, it's well acted, despite the content that's performances in there. are great. Performances are amazing. Tiny Zeus Lester, great. Yeah, and on a side note, this I guess it would Chris be Chris Tucker, things. great. Chris Tucker, yeah, amazing. On a side note, so technically this would be three things. Stylistically, it's awesome. Like, yeah. It's so unique. Yes. Um, but in terms of the plot device of the hero, which is you know Bruce Willis's character, yep. unable to save the world without like uh, loving the woman who could. Oh, interesting. That's a very deep message. And it's something that I heard someone else say on a different show. Can't remember what. But when he said it that way, I was like, holy, like, that's actually pretty, like, ahead of his time. Because, like, back then, it was a very sort of, like, formulaic method of, like, the hero, the dame. Yeah. And, like, you know, there's this big villain, that this big bad you have to deal with. But the only way, as strong as he was as a character, he could not have done it without truly loving the woman that he was with and then she then would be able to like oh, it's such an wow. interesting perspective to put yeah. that is it do you think it's because well oh for me like i guess the lens that i previously had was it was more of a typical romance and then mm. like the romance and the the fish out of water plus mm. the mismatched partnerships mm-hmm. would culminate yeah, yeah, into yeah. that moment but that's an interesting way to put it, where it he is. had to learn love yeah. in order to allow her to save it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And what's really, really cool about this is that it kind of walks a fine line, because especially like nowadays, you know, you have this new wave of feminism that's like, you know, you don't necessarily need a man to be successful or be able to achieve right. your goals. Of course. And I think this movie doesn't really do that at all. It's, it's really more about, from the definition of masculinity, being able to... Uh, express emotion and being able to be comfortable within that space rather right. than being so caught up on, you know, how you represent yourself in self-image because this character is very macho. Absolutely. It's, but then there are eccentric male characters all throughout the film. Like Chris Tucker. Yeah, like, like Chris Tucker. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's a part of that journey in that subtext. It's like him getting to a point where he's super comfortable to be able to express that and feel that right and i think that's why he dislikes chris tucker's character so much because <laughs> besides him just being in his face all the time right, just he's being just super extra super extra he's he's obviously a straight character but he's very comfortable with his own sexuality of course the yeah way he dresses right how he speaks how right. he carries himself even his entourage came across as somewhat homosexual but yeah, at sure. the same time those were his homies like right he didn't care about it. You know what I mean? Right, so it's right, like right. Bruce Willis was not there in the beginning of that. No, movie. he was definitely not there. But then that movie, <laughs> no. it's so interesting because that movie has such European sensibility. Yes. Where there is that um, that uh, that gender and sexual fluidity that's intrinsic to the visual and like like cultural language of mm. the film, mm-hmm. which was so forward thinking. Yeah. And then plus you have the visual pop to it. Yeah. Then you take a still from that film now, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's just, that's just the shit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I watch that movie maybe once a year. Like, oh, and I, it's, great. It, it's never boring. I just, yeah. I love it's a, It's a film it. of moments. Yeah. Moments to moments. And the moments don't always make sense the way they string together. Nah, but not it, always, no. But it's dope. Yeah. And wow. you know, Luke Besson tried to recapture that in his latest film. Uh, what was it called? I can't remember. Valeria and the City of a Thousand oh, Sons or something. yeah. Beautiful movie, but so bad. It's so <laughs> poorly written. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh man. That's another. That's another conversation for another day. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Fifth Element was extra and ahead of its time, mm-hmm. and then I think being extra doesn't always take you there anymore. No, not at all. And and it kind of goes back to your earlier point with Black Mirror, right? Which is like, are people basically becoming sort of like numb. used to or numb to 
like the sort of wow factor that Black Mirror has to offer and other things of its ilk, right? Right. You know, I think, man, the, the creative field is a losing battle, I feel like, when it when really? it's dependent on an audience sometimes. We're getting so deep so fast, I'm into this. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> because it's like, once you do that thing that's totally outside the box, yes. and it's especially like the thing that you do out the gate, it's, it is very, very difficult to top it. And as an artist, I think you come to this sort of existential question where it's yes. like, do you, should you care to top it? Or like, was that, should that be your intent? Or should you just create things that you know have a story that needs to be told and just keep it as simple as that? You know what right. I mean? Because I think for me, like if you constantly strive to keep topping yourself, like intentionally. Intentionally you're going to put yourself in a hole, I feel like. Right, where you're constantly competing with yourself, but yeah. like you're self-consciously mm -hmm. competing with yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, I think for me, as long as you're, you're honest and pure about the process and about what you're trying to achieve, right? I think it, I mean, it's difficult to do, but it's almost like each project you take, you need to take it on as its own sort of like siloed moment or like kind of unique moment. Like right. kind of, like you, you want to take learnings from what you've done in the past, but you almost want to treat it like, it's almost like your, your kids, right? Like yeah. Your first kid might be awesome. Right. Like could be super talented. Your second kid might be just average Joe right. or Jane. Right. Just whatever. But that doesn't make them any less special. Yeah. So your kids. Of course, yeah. So there's the whole element to that where it's like, you just need to find the brand and like each thing that you create, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to achieve like overtaking what you've right. done before. Do you think that's an auteur mentality? And has the auteur mm. mentality just gotten, uh, you know, has it but like just de-evolved or has it changed so that we don't think that way anymore? Mm. That's a good question. Because I think auteurs would, like a, like a Kubrick type of personality mm. would be like, this is my thing and I'm going to take it and I'm going to do, uh, we're going to film this one scene of Tom Cruise yeah. uh, playing pool with Sidney Pollack for yeah, yeah, yeah. for a month. <laughs> and uh, that sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, but now is there, or we just have to by nature allow ourselves the more creative ebb and flow yeah. and are we under duress and responsibility to respond more to exterior stimulus? I think you could sit in a silo mm -hmm. before, but now we're like, no, you have to pay attention to that. Yeah. I mean, you know what? That's the beauty about art, right? It's right. like, there, there are no rules. Like when it comes to design, yeah, you need to respond to yeah. a variety of different external influences, external factors, because typically you're answering a brief, you're dealing with a client and you're dealing with a- <laughs> Getting texted by our mutual friend, John Newman. Hey, what's up, John? <laughs> hey, what's up, John? <laughs> You can't hear us, um, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's like you you definitely want to get to a space within design where it answers those key questions. But when it comes to art, I mean, it's it's really just, there's no really wrong way to go about it. Like you can potentially use things right. of outside influence, like, you know, like an Andy Warhol or, um, you know, where they just use pop culture to kind of really influence the message that they're trying to tell. Right. Or it could be just a very sort of internal storytelling that, you know, you may choose to let people in and if they like it, they like it. If not, then But did, did, is that like the personal versus the commercial approach to your output, you know? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think, 
So, like, when it comes to the work I do, right? Right. Oh, actually, wait. Before we jump into that, okay, yeah. let's take it all the way back because we, oh, yeah, we're yeah, sure. so deep in. Yeah, we were. Yeah. We jumped the gun a bit. Exactly. Quentin so, Tarantino did, as they no, say. No, we did. <laughs> yeah, we're right at the end at the diner scene, all being a bunch of cool little Fonzies. <laughs> so, uh, Kervin, thank you so much for coming on First Generation Burden. Thank you for we're, having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. It's my honor. Um, you are an amazing designer, artist, um, design director of Vault 49. You Thank do you some great work. And uh, we are recording here at the lovely Listening Party Studio over Canal Street Market. Which looks amazing. Oh, like, yeah. This I is a nice this little fishbowl, right? Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, it's like a lot of pink lights down here. <laughs> Our orange shirts are popping off against like <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the chassis lighting. Um, so if you could tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and where you're from, and then we can just con- recontinue our conversation. Our deep conversation. Yeah, sure. So... Uh, basically, my name is Kervin Brousseau. I'm a first-generation Haitian-American designer, illustrator, artist uh, based in New York City. Uh, I live with my lovely fiance, Maria Rosario, who's originally from the Dominican Republic, represent Hispaniola. Um, and DR. Yeah, that's right, man. We both share the same island. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's what's up. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so I basically was born and raised outside of New York City. So in a small little town, little county called Rockland County. Mm-hmm. And I've jumped around in various areas within that county, Garnerville, Spring Valley, um, what you call it? What's another one that I used to live in? Uh, Suffern. Suffern was another one. Gotcha. Um, currently, my family now, like my mother and my father, they yeah. still live in our house in Spring Valley. Gotcha. Is there a big Haitian community in Spring Valley? Oh yeah, huge. Really? Massive. Lots of Haitians, lots of Mexicans. Um, um, there's a strong sort of Jewish population as well yeah. that's like kind of overtaking the community. In a way, there's like a, there's like a new form of gentrification that's happening in oh, Rockland County where the Jewish community is kind of buying a lot of uh, houses mm-hmm. and uh, repurposing them or kind of renting them out um, to to residents. And it's it's happening in our street right now. Like a lot of the neighbors that I grew up with from high school upward are not even there anymore. It's mm. all bought by... Uh, the Jewish uh, community, they have like a strong tight-knit community over there. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, my God, yeah. So, so where does that uh, Haitian community go to? Like, what, where, where does that displacement well, happen? The one, thing, the one thing about this is that we're not necessarily being forced out. Sure. They are offering, um, but people have the choice to accept or not. Of course. Um, but a, a lot of the Haitians are still like very, very strongly staying within Spring Valley, just probably like moving over like a few streets or like maybe just like another town over um, there's a strong Haitian community in Ramapo and Nanuet. Mm. I mean, we've taken over a good chunk of, <laughs> of Rockin' County, to be honest. Yeah, if, totally. If we're really honest. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm from Jersey, and yeah. uh, there was a strong Haitian community in Newark. Yeah, and also, sure. like, the Oranges. I'm from South Orange. Mm. And, um, yeah, my gym, actually, shout out to Coliseum Gym, uh, my old, old gym back in Newark, because, yeah, like, that was, that was like, half Haitian, I felt like. Yeah, 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 yeah. and then, like, when I hit, like, 5 p.m., I was like, man, everyone here is so brolic. <laughs> and it's funny man like you like I always had this thought as a kid like I feel like Haitians when they leave Haiti they only go to like just a couple of places around the world they'll go to France yes they'll go to like Canada so like Montreal yeah because you know those are of course, the yeah. two French speaking places and then in the States they'll go to like New York State New Jersey like the tri-state area yeah Florida and like like you know, some parts along the East Coast, like maybe you'll see some fringe communities in like Washington right. D.C., but I do not have any family that I'm aware of that lives in the West Coast. Oh, I don't that's know any interesting. Haitians that move out 
that far west. Well, you know, like uh, when I moved out to Portland for a couple of years, there is no West Indian Caribbean culture like that. Yeah. Like, there's no presence there. No. And I remember like something as simple as just hearing reggae in a club. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that never happened. And mm-hmm. and. I, my fiance, she's from the Bay, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Oh, I'm like, we don't have dance hall out there. We don't really Isn't that crazy. Yeah, we don't really pop off to that. Yeah, I mean, geography definitely does play a big role. I mean, like, it's like, why would you move that far? But then at the same time, it's like Haitians go to Europe, but it's, right, it's a very specific part of Europe. It's a Europe that they can live in comfortably because of, course. of linguistic purposes, like yeah. France. Right, right, right. Funny story though, when my dad first uh, got his visas, he got two. He got one visa approved to move to, I think, Connecticut specifically. Okay. And then um, he got another visa approved to move to Germany. Mm. And he really, really wanted to go to Germany. Um, And the only reason why he decided to go to the States was because his family basically convinced him, like, look, you're some 20-odd-something guy. You've never really left Haiti before. Like, why are you going all the way out in the middle of nowhere to be a fish out of water when you can just be comfortable with family? Yeah. And... You know, every time I talk to him about that story, I think in hindsight, he kind of wishes he did the German thing. Because <laughs> um, just in terms of, you know, lifestyle and like finance, school, like it's much cheaper out there for that right. kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, America, you know. What'd your dad do? My dad, before he uh, moved to Haiti, what did he do? He had a very tough life, man. Like when he grew up, uh, he grew up without his father. His father was not around. His mother died when he was 11. And uh, he was like, like basically like on his own for a while for like three years before his godmother took him in. And um, up until his sort of 20s, um, it's kind of like an unknown as to what he did. Like he's never really brought it up exactly as to oh, what he did as a, as, a, as a kid. I've never asked. Sure. But I do know that when he moved to the United States, yeah. he um, was a truck driver. Got it. So he did that for a little while. Um, and to step back, when he was in Haiti, he was actually an amazing soccer player. He played goalie for his local team. Oh shit! <laughs> and they called him. Is the he Eagle. tall like you? He is not. He's about he's about five nine. Got it. Five nine. Oh, which tall. is taller than me. Yeah, like it's yeah. tall enough. But um, the stories that you would hear about him is is pretty funny. Uh, like apparently they know, they named him the Eagle, which was like <laughs> because he, apparently name. he had hops. Like he was able to just stop the ball. From Yo, the that's dope. Which the is eagle. Yeah, the eagle. Which is funny. That's that's when he told me that I kinda cracked up a little bit. But um you could see like pictures of him like like the whole soccer team would have like an orange, like their orange sort of gear. And uh-huh. he would just be in like a jean jacket, bell bottoms and like his fro. Like he looked like something out of like a black sportation movie. Like, oh my god. Hysterical. That's amazing. It's pretty hysterical. But it sounds like he was just styling though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was just styling, man. Uh, he he had swagger for sure. Yo, what what is it about that immigrant mindset of mm. I don't know, I'm not going to tell you what I did back home. Like I didn't know what my dad did when he was still in the Philippines before he came to the states either. Mm. It was like a mystery. Mm. Then he told me one day, he was like, "Yeah, my my dad, he made he made coffins. He worked in mm-hmm. a funeral home, and then I would just help him make coffins all day. I was like, "Word!" <laughs> I was like, "I how did why didn't why do I not know that?" You know what? It's funny because a part of it was just me not deliberately asking him. Sure, I don't, I don't think like he would keep it from me if I went out of my way. Be like, "Yo, what exactly did yo, you yo, do?" Yo, pops, what were you doing? Like, what were you doing? Because the one thing he would say, like, you know, he went to school. Yes, um, he he went to school. I believe out in Port-au-Prince um, for for college or whatever, and. Um, 
like he got his visas to move to the country like not too long after that. Yeah. Um, so whatever he was doing in between, if I were to guess, I like to think that he did something probably within like agriculture because he really, really loves agriculture. Mm. And it's something that it's like a, it's like something that he was just always passionate about. Never went to school for it. Yeah. But, um, it's just something that he just carries with him. He, he had like a little garden at our, at our like family home when I was in high school. Um, he maintains the land, um, that we have out in Haiti. We have two properties that he purchased. He got, um. Like one, like up in like in the mountains in the nearby town, which is our family home, and then he bought a little business property that he's gonna rent out to like businesses and like have the top floor be like studios for yeah like uh, residents. Wow, um, do you go back home a lot? He goes back quite a bit, and I've I've been going once every like few years. Really, I, the, this is the longest stint that I haven't gone back to Haiti, which is about really. Um, I think it's been about seven years now. I yeah. need to go back. It's it's time for me to go back and, and see family again. But it's always fun to go back though, because it's uh, it's just nice seeing everyone. And and the odd thing about that is, my mother's side never left Haiti; they stayed there. But my dad's side, like a good portion of them, those yeah. people that convinced him to move yeah. to New York, uh, live in Rockland County. Like, oh wow, pretty much all of them do. How was your mom's family affected within the hurricane situation? Oh yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, they they seem to they seem to be doing just fine. The yeah. the the scarier thing was the earthquake that happened like years and years. Right, ago. right, right, right. That was insane. But you know, like I was lucky, man. Like I didn't lose anyone in that. That because oh, like that's there's a lot of people who did. Yes, because like, you have family in Port. Like, you have family all over. But because my town was so far removed from the epicenter. Yes, they had they felt a couple tremors maybe, but yeah. it wasn't anything. Uh, wasn't anything crazy. So that was good. That's the, good. The one scare was my uncle, Eve, who who passed away not too long ago, um, was driving in the area. So he was missing for, for a little while, but we found him. And, and he's wow. Fine. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah, Damn. Checked all good. the marks. Yeah. Seriously. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Where did your creative sensibility start and how were you, mm. what was your progress there? Like, what what was your first, like... Uh, little uh, you know creative doodles oh man you know it's funny that we're talking about this because I yeah. just did an interview with Adobe yesterday that's talking about the same exact thing oh that's cool so wait so when does their come out first because I want to hit their I want to hit our content first yeah <laughs> I want to beat Adobe's content first <laughs> no, I'm just um, so basically <laughs> oh, well, oh your work well we should talk about that because your yeah. work does open up Adobe Illustrator does yeah, it not it does it does, it does. and yeah, when yeah. did how did that enter your life Oh man, so is that it, just random? Is that through you? Is that through Vault or dude? No, it wasn't through Vault. So my relationship with Adobe started with Vault Forty Nine, and we were trying to get new business from them, but that relationship has kind of like fizzled a little bit. Sure. Um, that being said, you know I kind of continued like maintaining contact with them on my own time. Of course. And you know Matthew Richmond over at Adobe. No, they're, they're such a huge company. It is a massive, massive company. It's so, because like I'll work with people and I'll, I'll name drop people I've worked with and they're like, oh yeah, I, I don't know who that is. So yeah. it's like, it's so, it's just, of it's course, just yeah, massive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when I was doing a personal project, I don't know if you saw like on my Instagram, I have like those orange faces. Yes. So the piece that opens up for Illustrator, I did not originally design it for that. Got it. I had just done this as a piece just to experiment with their new software that they had released. Oh, is uh, the thing that was on the tablet? Mm-hmm. On the iPad, yeah. It was specifically on Adobe Sketch and Adobe Draw. And uh, I can't remember the one who reached out to me, um, but she was like, hey, we like this piece. Could we use it for Adobe Illustrator? That's so cool. like, 
Sure you can. Yeah. <laughs> like, you mean the thing that opens up the program yeah, for everybody? Like, literally. Like, it was pretty crazy when they reached out. And then someone put it in perspective for me. They're like, you do realize that millions of people open that software every day. Yes. I'm just like, I didn't really, really even think about that. Yeah. Like, when, yeah. when you think about the imprinting on the psyche of the creative before they literally put, like, you know, Wacom pen to to plastic paper mm -hmm. that's an amazing thing yeah and then you're like even if it's like a small fraction of influence you have that by virtue of simply being there the barrier of entry or at the barrier of entry yeah. it's crazy it's yeah. it's so crazy like the amount of influence and i think that's where my my following kind of grew a bit more yeah. because of the constant interaction with my artwork of course yeah so people i didn't realize like how many people will actually go out of their way to like like oh who find is i'm the person that they, yeah i didn't I had no idea yeah so it's, it's really cool that is cool oh so you were saying the adobe interview and then yeah. the story that you told at adobe yeah yeah so basically like how you started yeah, so basically, um, Tarantinoing again. Tarantinoing once again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, my influence started with the fact that I was on lockdown when I was a kid. Like, I wasn't allowed to leave the house. Oh, just conservative parents. Yes, yeah, super conservative parents. And you, I'm sure you understand where that Absolutely, comes from. Yeah. Like, uh, you, have, you have siblings? I do, my brother. Youngest, oldest? Younger. Younger brother. Mm. Oh, so you're the first one. I you're the, the first, first one, out. one out. Parents hardest on you. Yes. My parents are hardest on my sister, and I'm the youngest one. So mm -hmm. I benefited from yeah. her paving the way. Man, they were, yeah, they would not let me leave the house ever. And like, even in high school, there was like certain things I just was not allowed to do. It's like, really? Like, I can't like just I know. do this thing? I mean. Can I go to the mall? Yeah. It's like, like, <laughs> like, I mean, come on. So it's like, yeah, Haitian parents. Kept me on lockdown. So from a very young age, there was just only a few things I could do. Sure. Um, this was before even I had video games yet. So it was like I had to watch a lot of TV. Yeah. Or, which they also controlled, mind you. They're like, yeah, no TV <laughs> until the weekend. It's just like, yet. God. No, that's me. not. No, that can't be real. Mm, no, believe me. It was real. That was my reality for a little while before they like eased up a little bit. Oh, my God. You're oh, like man. you're like Brie Larson in the room. <laughs> <laughs> They just wanted me to read books. And God bless my brother. He liked reading books. I hated reading books. Well, actually, I, I, I got to respect that, though. Yeah, yeah. I do. I do. And, and you know what? In hindsight, it's like, I'm, it makes sense. Like, yeah. you don't, because like, you, you look at the kids nowadays, like, they have so many more things that they could be distracted by. Yes. Right? Like, with the phones and the iPads and the this and the that. There's like a screen in every room, practically. Yes, At of some scale. So it's, yeah. So and it's, it's like, the babysitter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it is the babysitter. People like there's it's a so lot interesting of that parents back then wanted to babysit their mm -hmm. kids. They're like, hey, I want to be here for my kids, make mm -hmm. sure my kids doing the thing. Mm -hmm. But now parents are just like, no, 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 let that other thing take care of my kids. And, and you know what? To I don't want them to mentally be here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's 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 a mixture of things. Like first of all, like I'm not a parent, so I can't even begin to understand yeah. the responsibility that goes with that. Yeah. But you know. There's, there's a thing to be said about growing up with technology and kind of not thinking that it's such a bad thing as our parents did. Because mm. while, you know, you and I, we've, we've grown up in, in a partially analog world, right? Yes, so of we're course. Kind of I remember both. when the internet hit. Exactly. Exactly. And you think about the kids that are born in like the 2000s and it's like, they don't know what 56K means. They don't yeah, know exactly. what, what it means to you know, work with a rotary phone. Like, they don't yeah. understand that. You nonsense. hear that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't, you don't know what that, they don't understand what that sound is. Any of that. So it's like, when you have parents that kind of grew up in an almost post-analog world to then have kids, like that technology in a way is, is just like, they just see it as like another thing. They don't really see it as a threat like my parents did. Yeah. Because 
like the television back then was such a novelty, right? Yes. And it's just like you, they, they there was a stigma with it too because it's like you see like people waste their day away at it. Oh sure. Oh man, it happens. I waste my too. day away making it. It's fucked yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's it's crazy. It's it crazy. Is crazy. When did you get cable? Oh man. Was cable something you had to get yourself? I remember yeah. I got cable cuz I grew up with no cable mm-hmm. and then I would I would watch TV a lot. I couldn't watch Married with Children. Mm-hmm. I, I I tricked my parents into letting me watch The Simpsons, just became obsessed. Right. Um like every other kid and then I would my dad would collect baseball cards um, and he loves collecting sports cards mm. and he would go to this one little sports card shop that's kind of on the side. He would go to this mm. one little sports card shop where the dude was kind of a heroin addict <laughs> and then I fucking hated it there. So, or we'd, or we'd go to a dope comic book shop where I could read comics and he could just do his thing or mm. I'd just spend hours there mm-hmm. looking at illustrations mm-hmm. and reading comics or we'd go to the one little fucking heroin shop where you just like trade cards and like smoke cigarettes. I'm like, I hate this one. But then it was uh, down the street from Blockbuster and I would just I, I would yeah. let Blockbuster babysit me for three four hours I'd be like who the fuck is this child walking down the aisles of Blockbuster video and I'd just look at like VHS key art and then my dad would come pick me up and I'd just have like here I'd have a stack of videos but like here dad these are the videos yeah. I, yeah, that yeah. I want yeah, yeah, and then yeah. he'd be like alright so no R rated anything I was like fine and then that's how I saw fucking kids although kids was R like that's how I got kids mm-hmm. that's how I got I saw Clerks for the first time. Oh, saw Clerks, fucking, yeah, classic, man. Yeah, um, you know, White Man Can't Jump. White Man Can't yeah, Jump. Above the Rim. I was like all into all that shit back in the day. Yeah. And uh, that was just, I would watch those videos because I would try to get the naughty ones. I would watch those like after 11 p.m. I'd just sneak down. And oh, you were smart. Family. Yeah, I was not dude. that smart. I was not that smart. I was terrified of my father, man. I was just like, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to cross that line. <laughs> just, I just leave it be. Oh, my God. Yeah. So when did you when did you start becoming ravenous towards media? Because I'm sure it happened at some point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When, like, you know, it, it started with me, like, really getting into television and, like, discovering anime and you know all these other cartoons oh like what i gotta know oh man so back in the day i used to watch you know the typical boilerplate stuff was like dragon ball z of course but then you know you go off to like stuff like trigun cowboy bebop oh, outlaw Cow- star oh my god the intro to cowboy bebop yeah was the shit and oh my god it was just like how do they do that like, so beautiful yeah it's gorgeous gundam gundam was gundam. another very popular one uh were you into neon genesis Evangelion. Oh man, that was something that I caught on very late, late, like late into high school. Yeah. I, I got into that for a bit. Got it. Um, Were you into like Rama one half or any no. of like other like cheekier shit? No, no, not at all. The, the, I got a lot of my anime information from my best friend, who's still my best friend today. Um, his name's AJ. And uh, like even to this day, I, I went through a phase in like my 20s where I kind of like fell off a little bit. Sure. And now I'm getting back into it again. And he's been like, he got me on the Crunchyroll, and he's just like, watch this, this, this. He's got me. He got me watching. Uh, what was one recent one that I saw? So I finished up Goblin Slayer, okay. which is pretty. That that was pretty dark. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, he's got me into some friend stuff, man. <laughs> you have to send me some links. I'm like really absolutely curious. will do. Um, there was a uh, Rising of the Shield Hero, which is okay. Pretty yeah, I've actually have heard that. Yeah, that one's really good. Um, I'm gonna start watching this one called Erased. 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 Yeah, I don't know anything about it, um, but I'm, I'll probably go. I'll probably start that like today on the train or something. Nice. Um, 
he got me into that time I got reincarnated into slime. That's a mouthful, but it's a that really time good. I got reincarnated into slime. Yeah, yeah, into or as a slime. Yeah. Oh, oh wow! Yeah. Being incarnated as a slime. Yeah, yeah. Is is that just one of those uh, translation things where that somehow translates into like four Japanese characters? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Like, this is more of a vibe, and we can't express this vibe. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Unless exactly it's a small right. paragraph. That's exactly right. Because if I look at the title card, I definitely don't think there's as many Japanese characters as there are in this words. <laughs> I'm almost certain of it. Oh but that's God. like more of like a comedy anime. It's really great, man. It's so fun. Gotcha. Um, I remember the first time I heard the title JoJo's Bizarre Adventures. Right? <laughs> and, like when I was in high school, I was just like, what? Yeah. Like, like, what is this titling structure of, mm-hmm. of a thing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it it's like so, it's so dope to just hear like oh that's how you name shit cool yeah exactly um, Steins Gate is another one that he's he's trying to get me into so I bought the Blu-ray DVD for that because mm-hmm. I couldn't find that on Crunchyroll anywhere got it um, and then yeah man so that compound with video games when I finally got my first video game system Super Nintendo oh, back wow. in like what was the year 91 90 that's when Super was, Mario World came that. out. Oh, really? I got the package that came with Zelda: Link to the Past. So that Ooh. that must have been mid to late nineties, like ninety five. Link to, to the Past? No, Link to the Past had to be like, no, yo, dude. When it came out, oh. yeah, it came out before then. Oh, gotcha. When I got it, it was about like mid nineties. Oh, okay, okay. I was, yeah. I was like, I'm about to Google. Yeah, something. check it out. Check it out. <laughs> yeah, let me know, cause cause that that game. Link to the Past. Oh yeah, cause if it feels part of like the. Well, this is like some deep cut, like nerd shit. But like, mm. like yeah, for for the video game to be packaged with the system, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Link. And my dad was cruel. Like he wouldn't wrap the presents. My dad was cruel. Yeah, he was pretty cruel, bro. That's like, amazing. Part of it was probably just laziness. He was just like, well, I mean, you already know I, ha- I bought it for you, so why am I gonna wrap it? Yo, actually, you know what? I can't hate on that because yeah. now I'm kind of like that. Oh mm. wow, Link to the Past came on '91. Oh yeah. Okay, so that I guess right. I guess it got became part of the package like later later. Mm-hmm. I bought my nephew for his birthday um, a Mario Mario Kart for Switch. Oh right? yeah, yeah, that's a great game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, so I got it for him, yeah. but then. I was like, I'm not going to wrap it. I'm just going to give it to him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Then, yeah, because then also it was paired with like so many other birthdays that just happened to coincide at the same time. Also, it's like, Jake, I got you Mario Kart. He's like, cool. I was <laughs> like, all right, there's, I guess it, maybe I should have wrapped it. He could have made a ritual kids, out man, of it. I swear, if, if you were my uncle and you gave me like, like if I was his age and I got a Switch, I would have been through the roof. Yeah, and he bought happy. him that fucking Switch, by the way. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, you know what it is? Like technology is amazing, but it also spoils us, man. Like Yeah, for sure. Especially if you grow up in a world like it is today. Like as a kid, it's not as much of a novelty anymore. Back then, yeah. like whenever someone released something, it was a novelty. It was. Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, like IBM Aptiva computers, like all that stuff right. was like, that was wild to see that stuff come it out. It was, yeah. You know? Like, what what games were you playing on Super Nintendo back in the day? So, Zelda, of course. Of course. Uh, eventually, I got my hands on NBA Jam Tournament Edition. Ooh, which was one. Big heads. That was a staple, man. Yeah. That was a classic. Um, Did you so, unlock the Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton no, big head? I could never get the, the freaking uh, cheat codes to work. I could <laughs> never get it to work for me. I don't oh. know why. Well, you probably should have gotten a Game Genie, right? Yeah, probably so. And you know what? The thing is, is like once I had the thing, I, I, I'm a very simple guy to please, man. I'm very <laughs> happy with the basic stuff. Like, I don't need anything too fancy. Sure, sure. And of course, my fiance would be like, oh, yeah, what about cameras? That's a different story. Oh, right, right, right. But you're a creative, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. She'll, she'll understand eventually. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, nah, man, like that, what else? My, my library wasn't too deep. I got Aladdin. 
Oh, Aladdin for that was a Nintendo. Good one. Yeah, it was a really it was a good side game. scroller, a side scrolling platform. Yeah. Side scrolling platform. Um, I borrowed like Donkey Kong, and I bought Diddy oh Donkey Kong, Kong sixty four. No, no, uh, Donkey Kong for Super Nintendo. Oh no, yeah, sixty four. Oh, Donkey Kong Country. Donkey Kong. Country. Oh yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, confusing. Yeah. Diddy's Conquest, by the way. Yo, probably Rareware. the best. Best one of the best side scroller games I've ever played. And that was on SNES. Yes, I remember when. Donkey Kong Country came out mm-hmm. and then and Rare was like popping off pre-Killer Instinct. Yes. I remember I would go to my boy's house, my boy Jeff in East Orange, and then I my my eyeballs exploded with just like the pure visuals of it. I was like, mm-hmm. how the fuck did we take this meteoric leap? Yeah. Yeah. In visuals. Mm. Killer Instinct was amazing. Street Fighter back then also Oh like yeah, iconic, super iconic. Oh yeah, super Street Fighter that shit. Oh yeah. yeah, Super Street Fighter Two. Yeah. Remember when they tried to port over uh, Super Street Fighter Two? No, Super Street Fighter Alpha Two. Mm. Yeah, they tried. They had like a kind of like a like a like a not so great SNES port mm-hmm. because by that point it was already on PlayStation mm-hmm. and also Dreamcast platforms mm-hmm. um, and also 64 I guess but then I it was like the last vestige of like SNES like right when it was like yeah. like the la- like its last toe was like dwindling legs. with life and you but talk- it was a valiant effort <laughs> it was and you want to talk if you want to talk about video game aesthetics that when I think back at like game aesthetics that really influenced me back then. Yeah. The Alpha series. Oh my God. The the style of like the combos and like, yes. like when you will open those those game books. Like yes. the extensive like game yes. books. Yes. Beautiful. Oh my God. The illustrations in those books I think informed so many kids. Yeah. And they, were you one of those kids that got like those tall vertical uh, banners to hang in your fucking room that you'd buy? That would come packaged with the with some of the books that you would get. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I got that for Marvel vs. Capcom 2. When I got Marvel vs. Capcom 2, it came wow. with a poster. That was awesome. That game like changed shit too because like the it soundtrack did. for that, it was like, oh, a game can sound like that? Yeah, like it was like jazz. Yeah. <laughs> First you're just like, what's it was like going fusion on? Jazz. It was. It was. But then when you when you get when you start playing good matches, it's yes. like, yo, this this actually gets you pretty damn hype. It does. You're hypnotized into it. Yeah. I had the realization yesterday because I was actually playing um, Street Fighter Alpha 2 at Barcade uh, over over on uh, 24th and 7th because they have a good machine there. They do. And they maintain the controllers there. They do. Yeah, they do. Because I remember the... <laughs> The left side controller got a little sticky for a hot second. <laughs> I've beaten that game in that fucking bar. You have? I, yeah, oh, I've beaten nice. it a couple times there. Oh, Although man. it's not set to a lot of difficulty. The barcade right. in Williamsburg, that Street Fighter, Super Street Fighter 2 there, right. is set to ungodly hard. Really? Yeah, they're just like, you're not sitting on here. You're like, this shit's going to eat your fucking quarters. <laughs> um, but I had the realization last night that the... Um, the 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 mechanics of like your finger movements for for Alpha Two because also you have that that parry. Mm. Uh, so that's in the was that in Third Strike? Is are you thinking Third Strike or is no, that Alpha also? It, it started in Alpha and then they carried it over into Third Strike. Uh, then, okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, where you could like you know, kind of like lean into the to the hit and mm-hmm. then counter. Mm-hmm. Um, like those movements are so specific, but then you're not doing much shit with like the full uh, with the full joystick, yeah. but you're doing a lot of button clicking. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But like a lot of like you know uh, counter like uh, counter fears 
solace and like half circles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in in Capcom, you're just doing a lot of uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. I'm like I'm making like a finger uh, movement of like um, um, you're taking your joystick and like for the for the double jumps, you're just fighting in the air so much. Yeah. And that was a mechanic I could never figure out with my fingers. My fingers can't do that. Yeah. And like learning how to play on an arcade stick, man. Like that took me quite some time because I was a D-pad fighter first when I first oh, started really? playing. You know, like when you're little, like you don't go to the arcade that often. The arcade yeah. was like this novelty that was like yeah. I remember the arcade that we had in. Do your thumbs translate well into your your pincers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I, you know the funny thing is when I played Marvel's Capcom two, I was strictly on D pad. Oh wow! Not play joystick, uh, arcade stick, and and now if I were to do that now because I'm so used to playing on the arcade stick, yeah, it's so foreign to me. Like it feels a oh, bit strange now. Are you slower, faster? I feel slower on the D pad. Interesting. Much slower, and you know, part of it is just like just habit, right? Like if I did it for like a week straight, I probably would just get comfortable again. But yeah. I just it's just more fun with the with the joystick. Gotcha. It's just way more fun. I know, way more fun. Mm. Uh, okay, so wow, deep aside into mm. '90s pop culture, but this is dope because I'm personally enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, how'd you get into creativity? Like, what, what, where did you, where'd you go to school? Like, well, how do you, oh, how yeah. do you become you right now? Dude, it was a it was a long roundabout journey. I'm sure it was. 100%. So So conservative parents, conservative parents, so you know where this is going. I'm sure you've heard this many times. Yeah. They had a specific vision as to where I should be headed. Oh yeah. And and you know what? I defend them for thinking this way because when you consider where they came from, yes. you know, not not the wealthiest upbringing, right? Sure, sure. Um their focus for their children is security. Of course. Not so much success. So that's a very different thing, I think. Like you can be financially secure, but not be successful. Yeah. Because success, I think, comes with a multiple multiple ingredients. There is the security element, but then there's also the the mental happiness that comes with it too. If you're not happy with what you're doing, it's right. not success. Right. I don't think it's success. So, but for them, it's just like we want our kids to like be able to fend for themselves in this country and. For them, that meant becoming a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Of course. Um, or some kind of respective profession. Right. Now, sadly, growing up, graphic designer was not in my vocabulary. Of I did course. not know that existed until college, really. Sure. So in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm I guess I'm gonna be a doctor. That's like that's like what I'm that's that's what I'm destined to do. So eventually when I got to high school, I was just like I, I don't really enjoy biology. <laughs> like, if I'm really honest with myself, as cool as all this information is, yeah. I don't have the passion. Like, yes. that's the thing. It's like, it may be cool, but I do not have the passion to succeed in this. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And so I failed bio my first. Did you really? Oh, like, that's amazing. I failed it not for effort, but Wait, this is high school, thereof. college. This is high school. Gotcha. This is high school. And it was just like, I, I knew it wasn't because I was dumb. Like, I, I knew I'm not, I know I'm not dumb. Yeah. But I just didn't care. Sure, of and, course, yeah. And I didn't know how. Did to, you skate by in high school? Were you just like in high school? Were you a good student? In the beginning, not in the be in the first like semester, like yeah, I was kind of coasting a little bit. And then after I got that that failure in bio mm. and and also English as well, because again, I don't like reading, so it's like English was also not in the greatest oh, great wow. point either. Were you a math kid? Did you know math? Oh yeah, I loved math. Math really? was fine. Wow. Math was fine. I sh yeah. I was shit at math. Great at English. <laughs> Yeah. And then started as a good student, became a shitty student Dude. towards the end. I think I was kind of forced to like math too, because my dad was like the kind of guy I was like, all right, let's count these quarters. I was like maybe 
eight years old in elementary school, it's like, yeah, how much do you make a dollar seventy five? And I would just work out dimes, nickels, and he would get upset if I didn't know it right away. So it was like, that's so interesting. Very early on, he put it in my head like, you need to be good at math. You got to know this shit. You got to know survive. This shit. Exactly. And my dad is a smart dude, like he's super smart. He yeah. has a great aptitude to learn a variety of different things. Taught himself how to play guitar. He understands electronics. Like all yeah. that stuff is self-taught. Like, yeah. He didn't go to school for any of this. Right. Um, so when I brought home that report card, <laughs> needless to say, and a lot of immigrant children will understand this. Yeah. I did not see the light of day for quite some time. Oh, I bet. Um, I bet. And it was an, an, an enlightenment for me because it's like, well, the first thing I learned was, well, I could bring an F home and, and still survive the next day. That's the first thing. Cause like I'd never done that. Yeah. Well, I might have brought child survival for once. Yeah, it's like it's like what's gonna happen if this ever like if I brought something like that home to my parents? Like, will I exist anymore? Like, okay. is is this like is this my death sentence now? You know? Yeah. So one, it does. There is like a weird finality to yeah, it. It is. It's apocalyptic when you're a kid. Oh my god, it terrifies you. So when I brought home, my, I remember when I brought home my first F. It was uh, in um, elementary school. It was a math test of all things, actually. And I was just lazy. It was either math or history, I can't remember. But I was just lazy. And I, I was kind of leaning on the fact that I would just lean on my memory to, to remember all the, the answers and sure. like how I did it. And it did not go well. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's like, uh, that was a pretty uh, rough experience, to say the <laughs> least. Like, uh, I remember it vividly, too. My dad was, like, doing the dishes, and I, I had to tell him, because every failure oh you God. get, you have to get assigned by the, by the teacher. Yo, like, you man, have to get you assigned by your parent. Yo, young kids and immigrants can't tell their parents bad news while they're doing the dishes or holding sharp, like, oh heavy objects God. in their hands, because that shit will get thrown at them. Oh, my God. I, I would tell my parents bad news, like, in the car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or... On the on the way to school, yeah, 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 or somewhere where they had to just like they couldn't touch me. I remember one time, and you know what? They they probably never knew this, but they'll not they'll find out now probably. I remember in eighth grade, um, I went through a phase where I wasn't properly doing my homework. My parents never didn't know this. <laughs> what does that mean? Not properly doing your homework. So like in like for example with history, like it was specifically with history. Like we were, it was a comp comprehensive exercise. So you sure. had to read the story and you had to answer questions at the end of every story. Yeah. Um, and I was getting to a point where I would just be lazy and I was just like, oh, I don't know the answer to that one. Mm -hmm. And the teacher's like, oh, really? Well, how about you go to page such and such and read that? And I was like, wow. It's like, Man. how hard was that to find? Gonna blow up your spot so hard. Ooh, so she, and it, was, and it was getting bad that even the kids that were awful in class were like, come on, Curve, like, this isn't <laughs> you, man. Like, come on, man. So this she isn't was, you? she was like, I want to talk to your father at the school. And I was like, please, Jesus. Oh, shit. Don't do that. Yo, Anything with that. You're kind of giving me anxiety right now. <laughs> just telling me the story. No, that's crazy. Okay. And can I tell you, let me tell you this. The, as soon as the bell rang, it's like 2.30 and I'm waiting for my dad to come Holy pick me up. Shit, she's yeah. the bus monitor. So she's handling the buses. This is at St. Joseph's, by the way. St. Joseph's in Spring Valley. Um, and my dad comes to pick me up and we're walking side by side and she comes the opposite way and she's like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, hi. He's like, hey. And she doesn't say a thing. She wow. forgot. She forgot to bring it up with him. And I was like, I will never not do my homework ever again. Oh my God. <laughs> oh man. What do you think her mental state was? Do you think there in that moment she was like, she was going through some other shit and then she, maybe she, she didn't want to have, really? I think she just forgot because she's, she's, 
she she has no qualms about telling people's parents like, hey, your son needs to step it up or your right. daughter needs to step it up. Like, gotcha. I was just lucky, man. I was just so Damn. lucky because yeah. you were like, was like Indiana Jones, like grabbing the hat right before, mm-hmm. right before, yeah, right before the like the little boulder door shuts, <laughs> like oh, get out of there quick. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that was crazy. So fast forward to that. Once I failed bio and uh, English, <laughs> once I failed bio, <laughs> uh, you know, I had a I had a conversation with my father. It didn't go well. My mom was upset, but my mom was always more like. Not lax is not the right word, but open minded. Like she was sure. more willing to have conversations with me when I was older. Yeah. Um. When I was younger, both my parents kind of treated me the exact same. But when I got older, my mom kind of, I I got the sense that she kind of saw me more and more as an adult and was mm. able to just understand like like I'm I'm pissed at you, and your dad's gonna be angry. But I want to have a conversation, understand yeah. like why you're doing what you're doing, and so. That phase of my life, it was much easier to talk to my mom about stuff than my dad for certain things. Yeah. You know, when it came to the guy stuff, I'd go to my dad. But for everything else, it was just much easier to communicate with my mom because she was so Americanized at that point. Yeah. Having moved to the country and like watching her daily soap operas. And, sure. So, you know, she was a nurse. And yeah, like she was just like, she just, I don't know, she just seemed to click with me a bit more. Right. Um, also, as a nurse, you have to talk to people all the time. Yeah, yeah. People skills was like a huge thing. So it's like, yeah, so after surviving high school, and like the rest of high school, I did well. Like, mm-hmm. um, I did what I was supposed to do, and senior year was kind of a joke. Like it, it got really easy to a point where, you know, we weren't given a lot of homework, but I was still acing my tests, and yeah. it was fine. Like I ended strong. Were you an athlete in high school? Yeah, I ran track and I played soccer. Oh, gotcha. I was better at track than soccer, gotcha. for sure. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but like, uh, and it was good because it got me like, working on my social skills because I was right. super shy as a kid oh, in elementary school. Um, and high school kind of got me out of my shell a little bit. And then when I finally got to go to college, I went through this dilemma again. And I was like, well, I know for a fact I don't want to be a doctor. Um, but this architecture thing I keep hearing about is kind of cool. Oh, that's interesting. My dad was an architect. Yeah. So I was like, architecture, I learned, was like an interesting way where I could appease my my uh, my my parents in terms of the scientific aspect of it. Like it, it blended science and art, I noticed, and yeah. mathematics. And I went to the Catholic University of America to pursue a dual degree in architecture and engineering. And that made them very happy. It, they, they were not happy that I went so far away for school. Mm. But I was like- Where was that? That was in Washington, D.C. Got it. And um, yeah, they weren't ecstatic about that. But I was like, look- Again, uh, conservative. Exactly. Kept me on lockdown. I was like, I need to just be out on my own for a little Hell bit. Hell yeah. Figure things out. You know, who I am as a person. You know what I mean? And that was crucial for me. Like, because I noticed like being on my own, I was still like a socially awkward person. And still like just trying to figure out who I was. And I was in this weird headspace where I was just trying to make people happy without just being true to myself. Mm. So like if anyone would have a conversation with me, I would work so hard just to try to relate because I just wanted to be liked rather than just being like, actually, you know, fuck that. I'm not really into that shit. Like, yeah. And I th- I'm so empathizing with you, this. You know right what now. I mean? Exactly. Yeah. It, it was such a strange space to be in meeting all these new people and just trying to figure out who I was as a person. Sure. Cause even at that point, like I'd never even had like a real girlfriend yet. I hadn't really, um, outside of my best friends, like my, my friend circle was very, very small. Sure. So it was like, I still felt like I needed to work with, interacting with people and getting to understand people. And I feel like if I was able to get to a place much sooner where I was more confident with who I was as a person, yeah. 
architecture probably wouldn't have happened. I probably would have discovered art and like graphic design as more of a means of going to school rather sure. than the architecture thing. Sure. But I think we all get there in the way that we get there. Yeah, it's it's a journey, right? Yeah. And and that's not to say the architecture degree was not a waste. Like and mind you, I did it for eight years. Like I did four years after I dropped the engineering thing. I focused on architecture. I did four years at Catholic U. Then I went straight to Syracuse University to pursue my master's in architecture because I was convinced that that was the way to go. Even though throughout my pedagogy right it was there was like all these different influences from my friends being like dude like maybe you should because they saw how i was doing my work i wasn't so focused on the theoretical yeah and like the mathematical i was more about the sort of aesthetics yeah yeah trying to make things just look sexy and sure they were just like you know you're really good at that um but obviously architecture is more than that maybe maybe you should like consider graphic design yeah and even then, this was like maybe junior year, one of my colleagues um, decided to do that exact thing. Uh, he left architecture and just like, I'm just going to go to a different school and just go to, just pursue graphic design. And he yeah. never looked back. And I was like, shit, man, maybe I should do the same thing. But yeah, I was still scared. Move. Yeah, I was still scared of my, of like what my parents would think and like, what should I do? And right. I just stuck with architecture for, for a while. So where did you go or how did you get your graphic design training? So it was just doing it on my own time. Wow. So I, like the thing with architecture that's really interesting, and you'll notice if you talk with a lot of architects or former architects, yeah. like they still utilize a degree in different capacities. Like a lot of them will go into set design in Hollywood or right. will get into editorial design. Yes. Because architecture, like all design degrees, give you fundamentals and basics about composition, yeah. about form. Right. Um, three-dimensional uh, thinking three-dimensional thinking typographic like like all that stuff still falls into place right because we still have to do presentations we still yes. have to think about all these things yes and it's i remember when i was because well, my dad was an architect right yeah and my dad like he had a large draft board like an og one oh yeah and then he would smoke um and then probably drink mm -hmm. and then draw and then i'd be in the next room watching the simpsons i just see him doing <laughs> yeah. his thing yeah and then he switched over to autocad and then he was just in CAD all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started to learn CAD when I was in high school just a little bit to help him out because he would freelance as well as like uh, uh, work at a firm. Yeah. And this, even the idea of like visual references within your file and like even setting things up so that people yeah. can understand what you're even talking about, mm -hmm. but within one simple image that is like Absolutely. dense with information. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was it's such a learning. Oh man. And architecture like aesthetically is, is gorgeous. That's what kept me through. It was just like, yeah. man, you see some beautiful drawings and some beautiful like three-dimensional models, some buildings. Absolutely. And it's just like, wow, I want to do the that. the genesis of, of a fucking skyscraper. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's man. unbelievable. Yeah. And, and you know, it, of all forms of design, architecture is probably the most important. I, I truly believe that because it, it kind of creates the fabric of our existence. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And modern society, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it informs everything through how we move through space, how how cities grow. Right. Like, architects really are that. Like, they kind of create our reality right. through the use of material. And it's just, it's it's amazing what, what they do. Even when it comes to the verbiage, to say like, oh, you're the architect of that thing. Mm -hmm. Or like, oh, these are the blueprints mm -hmm. of XYZ. Yeah. Like, even the the verbiage is speaks of bigger 
and and bigger thoughts and bigger metaphysical ideas mm-hmm. that aren't just specific to the skill set. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? It's it's a beautiful degree to get, man. Like it, it the the amount of opportunities I had from my pursuits, especially within Syracuse, I got right. to travel a lot. I went. I got to go to South America for the first time. I got to go to Europe um, and stay an extended time there. And I would never want to undo what I did there. Like I would do it all again if I could. Sure. Um, so when did you start getting into the commercial game? So here's the thing: is that architectural degrees romanticize the profession a lot. That's interesting. Didn't realize yeah, that. It they do because unless you go to like more of like a technical school you don't really get an understanding of what actually is happening until you start to intern. Now, I've done one fringe internship at at a place in Harlem um, in between my time of undergrad and grad. Um, And it gave me a sense of what it was about, but it was a, it was like a small, it was a small sort of um, like a studio. Yeah. And I got my hands dirty on a variety of different things. Right. Right. So it was it was very, very interesting because it was kind of misleading me into thinking that all places were like this, where I got to build models and like right. work on facades and do that. Because we were just like four or five people deep, right. um, as an intern, I got to do so much. But then you fast forward to my second internship, which was like someplace in Virginia somewhere. Okay. Oh, um, so you were kind of going all up and down the Eastern Seaboard. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was trying all kinds of stuff. But- the crazy thing was like that was um that gave me a more harsh reality of like what architecture how so in terms of the be. reality of well it's a big of a, a steep climb when you oh, start sure. out you, it's kind of an old man's game it is it is and you're you're definitely trying to you know understand what it takes to get into the line of work that you're trying to achieve like i really want to do residential architecture that was like my focus. I really, really enjoyed, you know, bespoke house design. Yeah. Uh, even like in an urban space, like creating like uh, kind of like multi-level homes, things oh, sure. of that sort. That was oh, because you can actually inject a character. Yeah, absolutely. Like when, when it comes to more sort of commercial properties, you can, but like everything eventually starts to become cookie cutter because there's certain like zoning laws you have to. Sure, apply to by nature of the infrastructure. Absolutely. So residential, I think for me was where it was at, but. Man, I just is did there money, not... Is there the more money in that? Not necessarily. Or is it more just um, creatively romanticized? Um, I think it's more... I think, in my opinion, for me, based on my taste, I think it's more creative to do residential homes. Gotcha. I think it's more interesting because each each project you take on can feel so bespoke and so new. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to commercial, like like skyscrapers, like you look at things like the One World Trade, yeah, it's awesome. But... At the same time, I feel like the rep- it's like the repetitiveness mm-hmm. of like once you design a floor, you kind of have to. Then you got you got all the floors. Yeah, theoretically, in, in a way, in theory, like you know, you can customize as you go along the top because it, it does this beautiful thing where it kind of tapers to the top, right? Right. And so you have to do some kind of bespoke. And those other corners kind of shave off as mm-hmm. it goes up. Yeah, yeah it's be- it's a beautiful, it's beautiful, beautiful uh, structure. structure. Yeah, but it's a deal um, more in like large nuance. Yeah, and I just didn't really care about the gravitas of it. I didn't care about having designed the tallest building of a skyline necessarily. I, right. I like the more intimate moments that architecture could create, sure. which I saw more prevalent in residential as opposed to, as opposed to um, like commercial sure. uh, structures. But I just didn't see myself paying my dues through like the five, six, ten years of 
doing toilet schedules. Right. And right. <laughs> eventually getting my my architectural license to right. then be able to stamp my own drawings. And I'm like it right. just it just seems and so you're like daunting. I just did eight years of this. I gotta do more. Exactly. Do yeah. And then the the fact that when I graduated the recession was terrible. It was just Was no it post two thousand nine? Yeah. It was like post collapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was on the verge of slowly getting better. But then architects were looking for people who had uh 10 years of experience yeah or learn a specific program that I was not quite versing yet it was uh, Revit at the time Revit was and I I was so resistant against Revit because I just hated how uh, simulated the design became mm. well like everything was like kind of prefixed and there wasn't much customization and it kind of regularized the whole process for me where it's like well what exactly am I designing if I'm just going to put a prefab column and like a prefab like floor plate and just yeah. like I like I wanted more freedom and customization that I felt like Revit was kind of leaning away from. So I didn't really enjoy working in that program at all. So I, I like constantly, consciously resisted learning it. Right. And it was to my detriment, but hindsight, it kind of was a blessing in the sky. Sure, because you got here. Because I got here, exactly. And how I got here was was an interesting story. So that same guy, his name was Koi Fan, um, who left like Catholic U to pursue his graphic design degree, I think at George Mason. Yeah. Um, reached out to me and he was like, hey, like, let's catch up. I met up with him. And yeah. he's like, well, what are you up to? What are you doing? And he was aware that I was kind of doing my own illustration work. Uh, and he was just like, you really should like tap into certain commercial spaces with your style. And like, like, cause I was really into doing sci-fi illustration. That was my, that was <laughs> That's my dope. shit. And uh, he was like, I think you should adapt that and apply it to like something more like like within sport yeah. or or fashion. And I listened and right. I I revamped my whole portfolio, having no work experience. Outside and what of era living. is this ish? Ooh, so this was 20, 2011 to twenty twelve. Got it. I think in the year twenty twelve specifically, because I remember. Like once I did my portfolio that summer, I was landing a few agents that then got me into some like gigs in the city. Um, so it was like June of 2012, I revamped my whole portfolio. Pretty much bypassed, the arch like I ignored my architecture thing. Sure. Uh, after a few failed attempts at getting work and, <laughs> and just pretty much um, just put all my cards in that, like put all my eggs in that one basket, man. Yeah. And my now fiance, then girlfriend was super supportive and she was just like yeah do what you gotta do um pursue your dream and we basically were like didn't really communicate for like a month while i just like was in my lab basically and by lab i mean my bedroom at my parents house oh, sure sure <laughs> and just like really just hunkered down and just did this whole illustration series uh, based amazing. on athletes um and just sent it to a few agents who took me in and the rest is history, basically. Well, because I look at your work now and I think it's so uh, beautifully and vibrantly illustrative, oh, but also you. in a, in a world that I, it's a similar language that I familiar am familiar with speaking, just because I worked so many years with Slam Magazine, mm -hmm. and then I was like, you know, illustrating on top of photography and yeah, like yeah, yeah. doing a lot of like um, expressive um, typography, mm -hmm. um, where um, you know you have to deal with. Uh, like a lot of uh, uh, multidisciplinary assets and kind of bring something that feels, you know, different but evolved, but also you can tell that uh, like a couple of hands had touched it just yeah. because, you know, you're working with photography as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, um, but um, 
Yeah, like your your work has such a vibrancy to it that it visually sings and also feels like it's based in sport and fashion mm-hmm. and also like personal expression. Mm-hmm. Is it that something that sounds like you landed there pretty quickly from the get once you made the decision? Yeah, and you know what? It's it's funny. Like um, the stuff that you see me doing now was definitely the result of of years of experimentation. So when I landed my gig at Vault in that same year, which was like a blessing, I was able to get in get into the door through a friend of mine named Karan Singh who um, yeah. saw that I would be perfect for this project. Do you know Chris Goldteeth too? Yeah. I know oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. Love yeah. 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 They, they have a, Chris Goldteeth and Vault have a long working relationship. Yes. Yes they do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love Chris. Uh, love Monique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're awesome. And they yeah, have two amazing. amazing dogs too. I got to meet them a couple of times. They're, they're, <sighs> their pets are amazing. Nice. Man. Nice. I love those animals. Um, they, uh, they, Vault kind of taught me the ins and outs of the industry. And I definitely took the learnings that I took from Vault and applied it to my own like personal work. And I started developing this style where I would just find um, just fashion imagery and just try to augment it. And, yeah. and honest to God's truth, I wasn't quite aware of like the Hattie Stewarts and stuff like that just yet. It was like immediately almost after when I started doing it, I started looking into that kind of style, that sort of photobomb style. And I discovered. People oh, I've like, never heard it called that. That's interesting. Yeah, she uh, Hattie Stewart. I think is like that's. She think, I think she calls it like a doodle bomb or photo bombing or doodle something. Doodle bomb, like photo bomb. And she is like the queen of that. Yep. Of that movement, like whatever art movement you want to call it, she's the top of yeah. the game. And then there's other artists that kind of follow. Sure. Um, her and um, and like it was just like a means for me to just create for creation's sake. Yeah, and then I I didn't really have an intent to kind of continue it or evolve it into anything. I yeah. didn't know where it would go, but those kind of exercises, which started with the fact that I just wanted to show some concepts to, um, to some clients of mine. Uh, uh, this guy named um, oh god, now I'm having a brain fart. Um, this guy uh, who runs uh, O Sneaker. Mm. O Sneaker does like all these different um. Well, now they they go by the the name Sneaker Con, which like they do like this massive thing all throughout yep. the all throughout the all throughout the world. All really. throughout the world, yeah. yeah my yeah, my brother in law, Jason, Jason Atienza, shout out to Jason. Yeah. He just did like a big thing in a Sneaker Con, uh, Shanghai, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's all run by one guy. Let me get his name because I feel so terrible. <laughs> I have, I, have, I just I'm just trying. Let me check my phone real quick because we text each other quite a few times. Um, gotcha. You, um, and you're into sneakers too, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm huge into sneakers. Yeah, man. Uh, it's is just, your collection like that? is your collection looking tough right now? How's it How's it feeling? <sighs> I had to do a recent cleanse because did you really? Oh, I man. did. So so basically, like my sneaker collection binge started very late. I always loved sneakers, but I never had the money to collect them. Right. So when I got into Vault and I started earning you know some money, yeah, I met a, a a good friend of mine who used to work at Vault now called Rich, and Rich was big. Like he was like, yeah, I've got like maybe 200 pairs back home. I was like, excuse me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was just like, yeah, man, just check it out. And he just, like, was just a bad influence pretty much and, <laughs> and really got me into it. And my fiance started laughing. I was like, dude, you're starting to get more shoes than me. Like, I thought I had the shoe collection. Yeah, dude, I used I to, it. when I was back in Jersey, um, in college, I, and I was working at a Borders bookstore. I was still getting a pair a week 
Um, I remember the first pair of sneakers I ever bought my own money. I still have the box back at home. It was like a pair of Air Force Ones, canvas, black and white. Right. Um, and I bought a half size bigger because when I was in seventh grade, I thought my feet would grow, but then they never grew. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I still have the box, man. And and then my my collection back in my parents' house in the attic got like 200 deep-ish just off of like Borders bookstore money. Mm. Um, and then now... Like and having gone back to the swoosh or worked at the swoosh, it just reinvigorated like that hunger in me, like something awful. So now I'm just like buying sneakers all the time, and it's like the sickness is like back again. I'm like trying yeah. to fix it. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I remember his name now. Finally, Barris Vinogradov. That's Barris Vinogradov. Yeah, I think that's yeah. Shout Baris out to Barris. Yeah, shout out to Barris, man. He runs SneakerCon, and um, uh, yeah. So they were like, hey, why don't you come up with some crew neck ideas? And so. Instead of like, uh, you know, um, just showing them just some flat concepts, I wanted to like simulate how it would look on, on the on the figure. Oh, of course, yeah. And so that's where that idea came from. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty fun and quick and easy to do. Let me just do a bunch of right. these. Sells the idea. Sells the idea very easy. And I ended up doing about 100 or so over time. Jesus. And it was just so cathartic, man. Just yeah. constantly being able to do it. And I was just doing it in Illustrator and just like, trying to do it every day, every week if I could. Mm -hmm. And eventually that style just started to evolve because I started getting commissions for it. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well, this could become something more. And then I started to build and start to world build beyond like just clothing and starting to add other elements to it to, right. to really make the scenes pop. And now uh, when you open up Illustrator, now when you it's open your up shit. Illustrator, here I am. <laughs> and, and you know what? Doing that kind of, doing that style gave me the confidence to go back and start to work on things like human anatomy and start yes. to work on compositions that don't lean on photography so much as well because it's I think it's such an important skill to have to be able to um, compose work without leaning on pre-existing things of course of course um, and yeah everyone could agree with that no no one who's an artist would not agree with it but at the same time it's like there's something quite cathartic about augmenting pre-existing stuff as well of and course. collaborating too like yeah. I love collaborating with photographers on yeah. stuff like that it's great exactly um what are what are you working on right now like what's what's popping off in your world currently Ooh, Ooh okay so I, i'm juggling like quite a few um projects right now it's it's been kind of like torrential <laughs> oh really like uh so i mean on the vault side i mean i as a design director i run a lot of the pepsico stuff so every year we do the champions league um ceremony so we do a lot of the visual work for that mm. we do a lot of the packaging work for that for both Lay's and Pepsi and even Walker's as well sometimes, which is like, like the, the the Lay's version in the UK. Got it. Oh, um, and, and for the listener, PepsiCo has a massive portfolio oh yeah. of of snacks oh yeah. and drinks oh yeah. that don't just encompass what Pepsi is. It's yeah, exactly. Massive. It's a huge umbrella of stuff. And we've been able to dip our toes in quite a few of those portfolios, which is quite nice. Yeah. They're an amazing client. It's intense work though, like, there's so much going on I bet. on the day to day that it, I'd it bet like also like toes. the corporate infrastructure that it has to go through oh for things and like there's the politics and it's just yeah. a part of the game you know like you it have is. to but what's great about them as a client is there there's always like a few people that are always on our side on that side mm. on there are a few people on our side on that side That's of funny. course yeah um, and it's great do having that because then they can fight the battles yes. for us to like when the kind of you know, sort of visual approaches that we're trying to achieve right. year in, year out. And um, that's a trust thing too, but that's built over time. Thing. It is a trust thing. Um, so leading that account, um, as well as a few other sort of fringe projects that we do at Fault, 
But then at home, I'm doing a lot of freelance with Adobe still. Mm. Um, I've taken on a new client, um, which is really, really exciting. Uh, they are called Drift and they run a event called Hypergrowth, which is like a tech, like uh, almost like a tech kind of um, like, a, I, I don't want to say millennial, but it's like a networking event that happens every year. Um that's focused on like entrepreneurship and that's things of that. so yeah, yeah, yeah. So they just launched one in, in London, which was pretty successful. Yeah. Um, I got to do all the graphics and branding for that. That's dope. Um, and now they're asking me to do the ones that's upcoming in Boston and potentially San Fran, San Francisco. Yeah, wow. Which is really, really cool. That is cool. Yeah. That's really, really awesome. Um, on top of that, you know, it's just like a lot of like commissions, things of yeah. that sort. I've, I've been approached by a few clients that are still like, you know, still contracts right. being developed. So like, I can't really mention anything about of course, that yet. Of course, yeah. But yeah, it's been pretty, it's been pretty cool. It's been pretty cool. In the past, when I, when I really got into the freelance thing, I was doing a lot of Nike work actually. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Was, which was fun. That was, Nike's a really cool you know, um, experience uh, for me. Yeah. Have you ever been to world headquarters? Have you ever been out there? I've never been. Uh, Jeanette mentions it. Like, Oh yeah. Our mutual to, friend, Jeanette yeah, Lau. Yeah. Yeah. yeah who's, yeah. who's crushing the mural world. Oh, Jesus, she's, she's doing she's everything. Busy, man. She is busy. You know, it's so, well, we were there at the same time, yeah. of course. And, uh, it, it was the kind of thing where you are on campus and you are in your day to day and you see the future every day. Like literally mm-hmm. from a product level, because you'll see wor- like work that is you know either two years out, three years out, four years out, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like super trend based, mm-hmm. but then also you'll see like the the future um, in terms of like the the creation of the product, mm-hmm. uh, and and now having sat inside the org and then now being outside of the org in mm-hmm. a new org, mm-hmm. I'm just like. I really didn't, I really took for granted what I was seeing over there. Right. And I really took for granted the, the idea that, you know, we're building rocket ships essentially (laughs) on, on some level, you know, that are, that are optimized for human performance. Yeah. And then it's amazing that they can create, that they cherish design culture so much. Mm. It's truly respected there. Right. You know, um, among a few other things too, but it, yeah, it was such a unique experience and I, I'm so grateful for it. Now, it, now, Nike has a very specific aesthetic that I've yeah. noticed now. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's setting trends, I think. Like right. in terms of, you know, this sort of, um, you see like a lot of viz work now, like out of home stuff that's very sort of grid oriented or kind of deconstructed grid, multiple yeah. layers of photography, typography, some illustration. Right. Um, and some agencies that do Nike work tend to overlap within that stylistically. Yes. I'm just trying to understand like- Like like Hort or like- Yeah, or like um, Rosie Lee or- sure. um, I'm just trying to understand like where, like in terms of the Nike graphic design language, where did that come from? Did that come from the agencies working for Nike or did that come from Nike drip feeding that to the agencies to be like, this is what we're trying mm. to achieve? Oh, that's such a good question. I yeah. think my interpretation of that yeah. is Nike's aesthetic for, and it, when, when we think of the, when we think of Nike, mm. probably people like you and I think of like nineties basketball. Yeah. Because that, <laughs> because we, we, all, we always yep. in our heads default to that. Mm-hmm. And then, and that's like the genesis of like, or the, the pure 
as the pureness of what that is because it relates to an athlete yeah. it relates to iconic athletes it relates to actual performance with within sport and then also it's a footwear company so we, yeah absolutely yeah it's, absolutely yeah it, uh, it's got to be the shoes right so um there is that reference point from nostalgia mm-hmm. and then there is also like the future thinking of like oh how do we simplify and how do we how do we make it beautiful and how we how do we put ourselves on the rocket ship to the future mm-hmm. so like those are kind of two like like that company is always thinking like nostalgia future and everything in between so there's always like a kind of yeah. converging and fighting thoughts yeah, really absolutely and i think what the company leaned into was the idea that uh what the creators um, on social media and the creators that actually wear the product, like let, let's see what they do with our product and then let's take the cue from them. Mm. Um, there's there, I sat through, um, I sat through a briefing when the, when the company briefs for the seasons, mm-hmm. they, it's a massive undertaking, at least from what I observed within my time there. Where all the designers will sit in a, in a like a amphitheater, and mm-hmm. then they'll all talk about what's coming up. Mm-hmm. And then um, one of the guys who founded No Vacancy Inn, okay, came in one day, whose name um, is escaping me, but No Vacancy Inn is like super dope. And he talked about the idea of the trend lens mm-hmm. and the the idea of chasing versus like. Of, uh, instead of like you know t- running towards the trend mm-hmm. which you'll never catch up to mm-hmm. like how do you take control of the flashlight and like uh the and sh- so you can shine the light on what trend could be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it was like a, it was a mind shift there so it was like oh let's always chase what they're doing in new york chase what they're doing in london chase what they're doing in la chase what they're doing in tokyo yada mm-hmm. yada yada which is like all old and dusty mm-hmm. Um, at least from like you know what we've always seen, and then how can we shine the light somewhere and see what these creators are doing, mm-hmm. and then um, we can use our power to highlight that. So I think it's that embrace of multiculturalism and embracing nostalgia, mm-hmm. and also still staying true to the tenets of the brand, which have kind of gotten them that success. Because, uh, you know, I think everyone was really scared of Yeezy for a while. And everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. was really scared of uh, Steph Curry and Under Armour. And mm. that was like, that was a very real fear. Yeah, yeah. Like straight up fear where like a lot of categories were like, holy fucking shit. And then I think the the company uh, lost touch with the the boots on the ground, mm-hmm. the sneakers on the ground. Mm-hmm. Agree. You know what? That's very interesting, man. And you know what I really, really am enjoying is the sort of deconstructivist approach that like that Nike oh, and, yeah. and other brands are doing too. Like of it's, course. it's, it's really, really nice how, and I wish more brands did it where they would just trust in the equity of yeah. what they have. And you know, part of that is you need to have a long legacy. Like sure. Nike's able to do that because it's an ebb and flow. Exactly. Exactly. Like it, I think it's brilliant where, you know, you have the swoosh and it's just a box, yeah. <laughs> but like you can still clearly tell that it, it's the same exact angular proportions as the word Nike because yes. because that's yes. just something that's just ingrained in our heads yes. for so long. That kind of deconstructivist approach, I think, is I think is great. I remember I saw that that specific logo, that deconstructed logo, mm-hmm. uh, back in uh, maybe spring of twenty sixteen. Mm. Oh wow! Yeah, I saw a long yeah gun, yeah, and remember 
it blew a lot of minds i think when when they when they showed that or they unveiled that little branding exercise because mm-hmm. then the the branding uh, or the style guide got really tight where yeah. uh where it was like you know you only use the switch this way you only sit it on this angle mm-hmm. you only do these certain things i remember when uh, uh do you remember the it was the kds the the Kyrie threes and maybe the LeBrons, but also mm. the the PG ones when that first came out, mm. they had like it was a it was a swoosh. It was purple and black. That mm-hmm. was the collection, and then the swoosh was sliced in the middle, was split. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, I forgot what the story was, but I remember being in the room when they pitched that creatively up the chain. And then um, uh, someone from design leadership was like, you know, we should probably talk to Laura about that. Can we do that? Mm. And and then that was very telling about the process at the time. And then how would because it ultimately the 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 uh, product lived right. Mm-hmm. So the lawyer said yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so legal was cool with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the. But what they've done now, where it's just like, you know, you have multiple swooshes and then like it's yeah. just like ultra swooshed out. And yeah, then yeah. you're just like breaking style guide to the utmost mm-hmm. and just kind of like embracing the idea of chaos yeah. through this through this simple form mm-hmm. um, where you take this minimal form and then have the maximalist execution of yeah. it. Yeah, maximalism is really, really interesting too. And in, in itself, like if you're constantly breaking the mold, you're kind of creating a new brand language then, right? Like yes. it's, it's no longer breaking rules anymore. It's like, now you're, you're, setting new rules. you're setting new rules. Exactly. Setting an amendment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it'll, it'll come back down. It'll come back to minimalism. Yeah, and it'll sure. be whatever it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just it's just responsive to the trend. I think nowadays people are super nostalgic, right? Of course. And like when you think back to the fashion of like the '90s and the '80s, like it was so over the top. It was so over the top. It was, but it was like but almost dope. Yes, it's like what like fanny packs coming back. Have you noticed how yeah. like everyone is rocking? Yes, and it's just like. But that's a drug culture reference is it yeah because in in europe um okay like, like i forgot i think they call them bag boys like mm. that that cross body bag yeah yeah it's uh drug dealers use that oh interesting i okay. remember when i i saw uh shout out to greg jackson uh my homie um also a former swoosh head he was in sportswear and also he was in lab mm-hmm. and i remember the first time back in like actually 2015 like early 2016 again mm-hmm. like he i saw him wearing a cross body bag in portland and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Is that mm-hmm. what's popping? And um, and then I and then I saw more people wearing it. And of course at, at Nike, it's like something like that catches fire on campus. Right. Then it, there is leverage in getting access to a trend before it even breaks out into the market. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we're all wearing cross body fanny packs. Right. And then I come back to New York and no one's doing it. Nope. And then my boy Howard, who's a great director, um, he would just like, he's like, yo, you're on that Euro drug tip right now because he travels all the time. So for the reference for him, it's like European drug dealers. Right. Right. And I'm just thinking like, oh, like this is the the comeback of the fanny pack. But then it's all because like Skepta mm-hmm. and um, like those guys and that connection point had really brought That's that. Yeah. And then that was also the um, utilitarian vests also came from that world oh, and okay. also like military harnesses yeah, yeah. and the idea of utility and over pocketing and air max 97s and air max <laughs> actually it was that yeah, yeah actually yeah. the air max 97s one um because that the idea of a uh, euro tech yeah yeah man you know what yeah we were talking about like sneaker collections earlier man i i think my taste now has um has evolved oh really how so um so i'm when it came to like choosing what i put on my feet i was very safe right <laughs> oh how so like what were you wearing when you were a kid though 
So when I was just subjected to what my parents could afford. So it was like, what's like one like fringe brand? Like, you know, like, I, oh, I, I definitely remember owning like Converse's, but like, sure. you know, like the dunks, like the kind of, um, like I was such school. a dunk guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I probably might've owned a pair of LA gears. Oh, really? <laughs> at some oh, point man. when I was like super young. And then after that, my sneaker collection was very, very simple, man. Like even all through college, and like undergrad, I kept it very simple because again, it was all about affordability. Sure. So sure. like, I would rock Converse's, I would rock Nikes. I was a big Adidas head for a while. Oh, really? Like Stan Smith's. Um, New York is an Adidas town. It yeah, is. Adidas city. It, it, it is in a way. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And you know, the I was like one of those people who like totally believe like the the Nike stigma of like you know like the labor issues and like right so that when I heard those stories I kind of had my reservations of owning a pair of Nikes for a while but then after a while and you know reading like being more informed and reading books like Shoe Dog which was like (laughs) you read Shoe Dog oh yeah I read Shoe Dog when Shoe Dog came out they put a copy of that on every one of our desks oh did they really yeah (laughs) what did you think of the book uh, I thought it was good. His story is amazing. It is. And, it, and also like the tenets of that brand and also the beginnings and the origins of that brand in jogging. Right. And how that and that European mindset of like taking like it's like the thought of exercise as Zen, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. brand new. Mm-hmm. And then using that as like, you know, like the, the genesis of like an entire like multi-billion dollar conglomerate. It's insane. Right. And he revealed in that book that Anituga Tiger yes. originated the idea of wearing sneakers casually. As casual, yeah, as casual sneakers. That's interesting yeah. to me. Like, I can't, I, that was pretty interesting to, to know that. that because right. Anituga Tiger, is that its own thing or is that a, a, like part of a larger umbrella? That was part of ASICS. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's and that's right. part of ASICS. And then I, Bill, Bill Bowerman was, he was, I don't know, what is it? He was like distributing um, Onosuka Tigers um, through Blue Ribbon Sports, which was the yes. company that he set up. And yeah, then yeah. Blue Ribbon Sports manifested itself into Nike when they started getting to the original product creation mm-hmm. through the waffle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the waffle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That was really cool, man. That whole book was amazing. But yeah, like going back to like tastes, right? Like, yeah. My, it's evolved because I, I remember when I was first introduced to Hirachis. <laughs> wow. And my my boss at Vault, he was yeah. shots to him, uh, John Glasgow, one of the founders. Yeah. Um, he was just like, "Yo, check these out!" Like he's he was. Hirachis are dope. They are, but it took me a while to see the light. I was just like, I don't know about these. Like they looked right. a bit weird to me. I didn't trust how they would look on my feet. But then it was just one of those things where after being like, you know, the weird law of attraction thing, where it's like, you once you're aware of something, you start to see it everywhere. Yes. Like, I started seeing Hirachis everywhere. Well, Hirachis popped off, like, when they re-retroed them back in 2013, early mm. 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, like, I remember seeing, like, a uh, uh, homie in the all-black colorway, and I was like, oh, shit. Because I had the the gray midsole black colorway when I was back in uh, 1999, 2000, when I was still b-boying. So we, used to be, we all b-boyed in Hirachis. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, man. I They're so comfortable. They're mad comfortable. That's it's what one's over. It's a little tight, though, like a little sock booty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's for, for thin feet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I, I learned like almost like the hard way. I have to go a size up. So I bought some Hirachi IDs know, at the nice. exact size. And I still wear them, but I don't wear them as often because they're just a touch too tight. Yes. So I have to go a size up. So I have yeah. these blacks that I wear almost everywhere. Yeah. Almost everywhere. Vapor Max is like are a little tight too. 
They are. The, the bag is like the, the the last on that. You have to buy like a half size up. I have to reliably do that. Yeah, luckily for me, they seem to work at 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 length. So like they like I'm I'm an 11, so I wear oh, 11 nice. at Viber Max. Oh, so I'm an 11 fine. too. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect for me. Yeah, oh, um, that's, a be- that's a beautiful pair actually. Thank you very much. This is like the mangoes. They're just right off the shelf. But then I customized the laces. Just I was gonna say like, wait, wait, there. no, those laces aren't. Yeah. Aren't off the shelf though. Yeah, I can't. I can't get my hands on off white, so this is the next best thing for me. <laughs> Yo, the sneakers app is pop. It's been popping for me lately. Yeah, I got the Zoom Kigers off of them. I got the Travis Scott Jordan ones off of them. Oh wow. Yeah, dude. And I was in the Philippines when I got the I, the Travis Scotts. I was like, I was across the globe, just like in a cab. It's like, oh shit, for wow. twenty five minutes. Dude, you're blessed because I have not been lucky. I've not been. Lucky. I was dying to get those Air Max ninety seven off whites, and I just could not. Oh, those are that was a good looking pair. That was a good looking pair. Very yeah. good looking pair. But I don't know. One day. Yeah, I'll yeah, keep whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll meet Virgil one day, and I'll be like, "Yeah, what's up, man?" I know. All I have to do is uh, go to LES and just pop in the Louis Vuitton <laughs> pop up. Have you? Um, are you into that Louis Vuitton shit? The, the stuff that he's doing yeah. right now. Are you into that? I, I really. What do you think re- about that visual language? It's so funny. We should be wrapping up, but I'm so curious. Oh no, you know like, what? What do you think about the visual language that he's establishing? I think it's really nice, man. You know, you know what? The thing is, I, I can understand the stigma that people may have against it, but I feel like what I respect more than just the the work that he's doing is just the the message that he's creating, which is you know just being a black man, yeah, um, in a predominantly white industry, um, and the fact that he's able to do what he's doing is, I think, it's like. It kind of like elevates the art even more for me. It does, yeah. Um, because it like you can be a really strong aestheticizer and have a great like like sort of a sort of like a, a great sense of form, right? Yes. But at the end of the day, if you don't have sadly, if you don't have the platform to really express it and kind of have an audience for it, right. it kind of disappears into the ether of all forms of creation, which is right. which is a very like bittersweet reality that we live in. Right. But luckily for him he's able to expose and do that. And and luckily, he's actually good at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, he's actually doing it well. He's, he's actually doing it really, really well. So I do like his use of color. I like his his like use of material. So it's not just color, but also like transparency that he plays yeah. with too. And talking about deconstruction, like that yeah. is a really, really cool, really, really cool approach that he's doing. I, I was at the, at, the, at the space in Lower East Side last night, mm. uh, where have you seen it? Where it's all painted all green? No, but it's like it. green screen green, okay. and then the um, the the glass has like the the plus signs, so like you can like you can track shit. Yeah. Like it's like like movie making like visuals, right? Mm-hmm. But everything that you just said and the idea of uh, his story about being a black man in America mm-hmm. and then painting all his models who are African American or like the. Um, um, not the models. The uh, what? What is it? The 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 dummies. Uh, oh, the mannequins. Uh, yeah, the mannequins. Um, all green. The entire space is green. The idea that uh, the black man can be anything, mm. and because it's a green screen, you yeah. know, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. like, this is. You think that he's run out of track on that narrative through a visual lens, mm-hmm. but then creates an but creates another stream to continue telling that story. It's mm. so fascinating. Yeah. But you know, even with all the success he's done, and like everyone, like when they when they get to a certain point of the spotlight, right? When they get to a certain top, there's always going to be people that'll try to bring him down. Like, oh yeah, of course. Have you seen the recent criticism that they've given him about not hiring enough black designers in oh, his off white? But isn't that uh, the Louis Vuitton? Oh, it is at the actual off white. I think office? it's actually at the off white office. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, which is it's an interesting conversation to have because it's like 
basically, they're basically claiming that he's not walking the walk when he is only hiring predominantly light skin or like white designers. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with context, though. I feel like, yeah, because like based on where, because Off White is based in Italy, right? So I mean, um, unless maybe he's not, because here's the thing: it's like it's hard for me to judge because number one, I don't run my own company. I don't know what yeah. it takes to run my own company yet. Um, that being said, we don't know the kind of pool of applications he's getting either. Right. Like, like if you like, I would love like at Vault, I I oversee applications that are sent in, like especially for interns. Yeah. I would love to bring in more minority designers. Right. But if they're not good, I'm not gonna bring them in just to make a yeah. message. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's tough. I still need yeah. to run a business, and I still need to make sure that whoever we bring in, yeah, you know, is able to fit the bill in terms of our need now yes. we have to be able to put aside values to a certain degree to be able to run a successful company exactly now that's not to say we don't allow opportunity like yes at the end of the day like we want like we're actually quite a diverse company which is great yes um and we've been fortunate enough to have a diverse pool of talent but for him maybe he's just not getting Right. enough of a range of talent that could fulfill that minority need of getting more designers. Right. Literally based on location, based on location, skill set. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's hard, man. It's, it's hard so, place. it's so tough. And unless you're physically in the day to day of what it takes to run that company, yeah. it's hard to really make the call. And I, same thing. Like I'm also in a similar position where I personally strive to bring in people of color whenever I can into mm-hmm. the conversation in some way, mm-hmm. either within the company or outside of the company. And this mm-hmm. is a part of that yep. um, in order to make sure that like I'm walking the walk and talking the talk. Yeah. Um, but also from, from a sheer practical level, you can't run an entire company based on um, social optics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and that's the harsh reality. And, it is, but at the same time, yeah. one must uh, provide that opportunity in order to lift all boats, and it's yeah. yeah. You know what? You know what it is. I don't envy the his position at no, all. No, no, it's a very tough position to be in. And you know what it is? It kind of starts at a very, very early stage. It's like kids like you and I, yeah, who probably were not even aware of it as an opportunity or a career path. Of like course, design, right? Yeah. So it's like it does start at the academic level. It does start at the academic level, and I feel like if we get better at reaching out to those youths who might not be aware of it as a, as a career choice. Right. They're thinking either I need to be a doctor and lawyer to make my parents happy right. or pursue sports or yes. music. And it's like, dog, that's like a whole other thing in between those that you could try to pursue. Yeah. And when I talk to like, when I do things like talk at the Boys and Girls Club at, in like Milwaukee or whatever, sure. which is like, which was like an amazing experience. It was almost surprising for me to see like how those kids who are like halfway through their high school careers weren't even aware, like, wait a minute, like, you could actually do all these cool drawings and right. make a living off of it? Right. Like, well, yeah. And it's like, it, it kind of took me aback, like, literally not a single one of them were aware of that as an actual career choice. Yeah. It's, like, it's just so crazy. planting that seed, I mean... You just have to let people know. It'll increase the pool that we receive. Absolutely. And then from a, from a macro level, mm. it's such a hard left turn. It is. It's a hard left turn. On the micro, it feels like, oh, you know, you can do all those little things. But mm-hmm. so, societally speaking, it's only stuff that's really within the past 10 years. Yeah. You yeah. know? And people say, like, Virgil could work harder at hiring. And I think, you know, yeah, maybe he could. But maybe it could be working harder at starting at a much earlier level. Like, trying yeah. to 
increase the spirit of influence. And by his presence, he's actually making it possible. I think so too, yeah. You, you know what I had? I had a recent realization, like still with that sneaker space. Are you, are you ever on StockX? Yeah. Yeah, you I've know, you know how yeah. StockX is like, it actually works, it looks like stocks. Mm. <clears throat> and now it's over a billion dollar company, right? Like mm. they recently just hit that. So I'm frustrated as a sneakerhead with StockX because I'm like, I'm just disgusted by the idea that the dopeness of a sneaker is somehow linked to its uh, resale value. Because I'm less like, I'm yeah. just going to wear whatever the fuck I want. Agreed. You know, so I don't care whether uh, those uh, XYZs aren't really popping off in GOAT or StockX. I'm still going to wear it. So Absolutely. fuck you. Yeah. But also, putting sneakers aside... The idea of letting, um, giving access, visual access in a practical way to young people of color mm. of the uh, the of the visual language of stocks and the mm. Dow Jones and the Nasdaq. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so like if if a young person um, who's on StockX just to like look at it, maybe buy some sneakers, maybe drop some money. The second they want to invest their own money, they have to, and they start looking at the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ. That visual language isn't foreign to them and they already have the leg up. Yeah, agreed. It you know, could, yeah. so it's like, it's such a blessing and a curse because yeah. on the macro level, you're just like, yo, they, they, we can understand this. Yeah. And, you know, oh my God, man. I'm glad you brought that up because on one level, yeah, you want like, you know, the minority culture to have a better understanding of career choices early on, right? But yes. then on the flip side, you want them to have better financial aptitude. Yes. Like, that's something that my parents didn't have, sadly. They weren't right. They weren't financially apt to understanding what it means to get a college degree, how expensive that actually is. And they just wanted me to have the degree just to be, again, secure. Yeah. Right? And... In hindsight, man, if if the if there was one thing I could change, it wouldn't be my career choice, but the pace in which I completed it. Sure. I would have taken my time more, do more side jobs to pay off tuition so I wouldn't be in as much debt, you know, sure. which is like an anguish that our generation is dealing with now. Of course. And it's like, yeah, man, financial aptitude is so important. And then, yeah, I agree. Stuff like StockX and if they could introduce that earlier on. Right. Man, they just need to change the whole curriculum altogether. <laughs> yeah, I know. In my opinion. Yeah, exactly. You need yeah. to, we need to take a class on like how to get a fucking apartment or something. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. It's crazy, man. Cool. Well, yo, Curvin. As we're winding down, this is so dope. Yeah, this Thank was fun. Thank you for coming through. This is a great conversation. I feel like we jumped I didn't want all over it to the end. Place. This is so much fun. Uh, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And also, kind of, I love having these conversations in this space because everything vibrates a little bit. Yeah. Visually, actually, yeah. You, you should actually one day we should come back and then you sit on this side. Yeah. Just because seeing the people and also like as we're talking, I'm just like seeing like crazy looks just walk right by. So, <laughs> um, what what's coming down? Anything you want to promote? Uh, any projects for yeah, our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. 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 So uh, from the freelance standpoint, I will be doing a couple of lectures at Adobe Max in Ooh, LA, which is awesome. That's a great venue. To, I've done a couple of things there too. Like that's yeah. a great one. It's an awesome one. It's in November. And I think Jeanette also will be doing some as well oh, there. So we'll catch cool. each other there. Um, be on the lookout for hyper growth in Boston. I'm doing the graphics for that. So great. that should be taking off, I think in the fall. Dope. Um, and on the vault side, yeah, man, just... Check out vault49.com. We do a lot of amazing work in branding, packaging, um, illustration. Um, we're shit hot right now. Yeah, I mean, just to yeah. be blunt. So, uh, and we're hiring too. So, um, the seats are tight. But if we can get wicked talent 
to send in their applications. Don't be shy. We're always looking for people to uh, to kind of bring in and change the mold. We love that stuff. That's dope. Yeah. Where can our listeners find you? Well, they can find me on my Instagram, at uh, Brousseau. So that's B-R-I-S-S-E-A-U-X. And that's pretty much my handle for all my social media, Twitter, Facebook, doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, if you can hit me up on that, DM me, shoot me an email to say hello, more than welcome to. I try to respond whenever I can. Um, and then on on the other side of that, um, if you want to just reach us out on Vault 49, it's at Vault 49. It's exactly how it is, the numbers, instead of writing it out. So, so simple. Kervin, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rich, man. It's been a pleasure, bro. So shout out to Kervin. That was a really great conversation. I could have talked to him for a few more hours, actually. Maybe we'll bring him back for another episode down the line. But you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps spread the good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. And you can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu on social media. And also, don't forget, the Nike Cultivator drop is today. Uh, it's the 270 React. It's pretty dope. Um, the link is live. Cultivator.co backslash NYC underscore rich underscore TU. Super long. Watch out for those underscores. They'll kill you. Um, but I will put that in the summary, uh, summary at the end. Summary? Summary? I think I'm losing my mind. So I'm going to put that at the very end and uh, just, you know... Uh, Give us some love, if at all possible. At least check it out. You don't have to buy anything. No pressure. Again, thank you to Listening Party and Canal Street Market, where this was recorded. Follow them at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Thanks to Desjin team for their support. Thank you for checking out Season 4 First Gen Burn. We see everyone. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>